This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Uh, I'm really very excited to be here. Um, I have a few disclosures, although none of them are relevant to this talk, um, but uh, the uh, conflict of interest uh, uh, outfit at UCSD requires that I brag about these uh, companies I'm involved with at every presentation, so there you go. So um, uh, we've we've been looking in the human genome for a long time uh, for the key to autism, with more and more human genes associated with autism, uh, it seems like, every year. And uh, this search has cost billions of dollars. But one question that I have uh, about, uh, about uh, all of this focus on human genes associated with autism is the question about whether we're looking in the right place or whether instead uh, we're kind of like a drunk man looking, looking for his keys under the streetlight, not because that's where he dropped them, but rather uh, because that's where the light is. And so uh, when we think about the keys to uh, the complex disorders that are increasing rapidly in, uh, in society at the moment, whether we're talking about uh, obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, uh, whether we're talking about things like multiple sclerosis and IBD, or whether we're talking about autism, uh, I think there's this important question about whether the human genome is the right place to look or whether the keys might be in some completely different location that we are largely uh, overlooking with present research directions. And uh, I'd like to invite you to consider what you saw uh, when, you lo- when you looked in the mirror this morning as you were getting up, uh, getting ready to come to this conference. For myself, I saw an organism that's just 43% human, and uh, not just because it was early and I hadn't had my coffee yet, but uh, when we think about what makes up our bodies, uh, each of us has about 30 trillion human cells and about 39 trillion microbial cells, mostly bacteria in the gut. And so that's where that figure, uh, 43% human, comes from. But you might think, well, we're uh, in this era of the genomic revolution now. Shouldn't we think about this uh, not just in terms of counting cells, but in terms of our DNA? And when we think about that, it's even more remarkable, because to our 20,000 human genes, the size of our microbial gene catalogue, as revealed by large-scale efforts like the Human, uh, the, the human Microbiome Project, uh, the European MetaHit Project, and others, is that our gene catalogue of microbial genes is more like 2 to 20 million genes. And so by that measure, if we're just counting up the unique genes associated with our body, uh, at best 1% of them are, uh, are the, ones that we were, uh, the ones that we were born with. So what's remarkable to me about this is that when we're focused just on the human side of ourselves and not on the microbes, we're ignoring 99% of our genes. But even more remarkable, the ones we ignore are the ones that we can change. And we're increasingly seeing for a range of different conditions how we can take control of those microbial genes over our lifetime and change them in ways that benefit our health. And it's very important that we understand the rest of our genes because we're losing them to a, to a remarkable extent uh, right now. Uh, so when we, when, we, when we study people living very traditional lifestyles, uh, such as the Hadza uh, hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, the last, uh, the, the last humans hunting and gathering in the Great Rift Valley uh, where, uh, where, where humanity evolved, uh, what we see is that they have very different microbiomes from anyone um, for, from uh, anyone who's taken up farming, let alone anyone who's living in industrialized societies like ours. 
And so uh, what we see in people living these very traditional lifestyles is that they have a tremendous amount of seasonality to their microbiome. Um, we can still see signs of this, as I'll show you later, uh, in, in, in American populations, but they're tremendously attenuated compared to the seasonal cycling that we see in the wild. But also, uh, when we compare groups like the Hadza and the Yanomami uh, in, in South America and others to uh, other people around the world, what we see is that their microbiomes automatically sort out uh, along a single principal axis of variation, where you have the people living the least industrialized lifestyles on the, uh, on the left-hand side and people living the most industrialized lifestyles uh, on the right-hand side. And this is coupled to a tremendous loss of microbial biodiversity. So what we see is entire major groups of bacteria that are present in essentially all non-industrialized civilizations, as well as being present in a lot of our uh, non-human primate relatives. But uh, all of those major groups are completely gone in, um, in anyone, uh, anyone in an industrialized society, even, uh, even in most people who are doing farming and uh, eating, eating grains and other products of agriculture. And so what we see is a new and much less diverse, uh, a much diverse microbial community coming in. And so it's almost as like, it's almost as though we had taken the rich inner rainforest that we had uh, in our gut microbial ecosystems and we bulldozed it and replaced it with a cityscape where you just have the pigeons and rats and not much else. And uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with Rachel Carson's work uh, from, from the 1960s, where she documented how uh, the use of pesticides like DDT was uh, transforming the world around us to a much less diverse ecosystem, where the attempts to wipe out uh, single, uh, single species of insects um, that were causing, uh, causing disease in humans, like mosquitoes, causing problems with crops and so on, were being wiped out by pesticides like DDT and others. And uh, my good friend and collaborator, Marty Blazer, uh, then at NYU, now at Rutgers, wrote this wonderful book uh, called Missing Microbes that, that, that documents something very similar for our inner ecosystems, where what made the cover was antibiotics, but what he documents in the book is how all kinds of other factors, uh, ranging from increased use of C-sections to um, low-fiber diets uh, to reduced breastfeeding, are also reducing microbial diversity uh, in, in, Western, um, in Western civilization, but also increasingly around the world. And uh, a pair of graphs that Marty uh, loves to show in his presentations and um, that I uh, shamelessly stole from him uh, is this pair uh, documenting um, on the left-hand side the decline in uh, diseases caused by infections from single organisms over the 20th century with advances in medicine, advances in public health. And so you can see, uh, you can see how all these diseases like measles, mumps, tuberculosis and so on have plummeted in frequency. But at the same time, uh, you see this tremendous rise in a whole lot of diseases where we know the immune system is implicated, including asthma, type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and Crohn's disease. And of course, another thing that is rising at, uh, at, um, at considerable rates uh, comparable to these is autism. And so uh, one question that we have is whether these efforts to control infectious disease uh, by targeting single organisms within our microbiome have gone too far and are leading to an altered microbiome that supports the role of all of these chronic diseases where the immune system is implicated. 
And uh, as, I'll, as I'll show you later in the talk, the immune system is very much implicated uh, in, um, in autism and, uh, and a range of other, um, and, and a range of other uh, conditions that, uh, while, uh, while, while on one hand they contribute to human neurodiversity, on the other hand they're often coupled to uh, GI symptoms, they're coupled to, um, they're, they're coupled to uh, issues with cognition and so on, uh, some of which may be correctable by targeting the microbiome. So, uh, so, uh, so I mentioned that uh, I mentioned that we can change our microbial genes over our lifetime, and an, an incredibly important way that we can do that is with diet. And uh, the idea that you are what you eat is certainly not a new one. So the Italian artist Archimboldo uh, painted this uh, representation of that idea all the way back in 1591. And in, in 1863, uh, the philosopher Feuerbach uh, came up with this pithy quote, Der Mensch ist, was er ist, uh, which is a great pun in German, uh, not so much in English, but basically he's saying that the person is what he eats. And um, I had the pleasure about uh, seven years ago of meeting, uh, meeting Jeff Bland, who's the founder and director of the Personalized Medicine Lifestyle Institute. And um, I was particularly taken by uh, a quote from, uh, from Jeff where he likes to say that food is a language that speaks to our genes. So just think about that for a moment. Uh, what he's talking about there is that our genes are fixed at conception, at least our human genes, but what they do depends on what we eat. And when we're talking about our microbial genes, not only how those genes are expressed, but which ones are even present in terms of the microbial repertoire in our gut, is tremendously variable depending on our diet. Now, I'm sure you've all heard the admonition that you should eat the rainbow, and like a lot of other classic uh, uh, slogans about food, including um, Michael Pollan's dictum that we should uh, eat food not too much, mostly plants, and, um, and uh, traditional ideas about not eating too many sweets, uh, eating, eating more fruit and vegetables, and so on. Um, all of those are very well supported by, uh, by evidence. And the language, the language of food is very much language of color. So everything from the carotenoids that make the carrots orange uh, to the anthocyanins uh, that make the berries blue, uh, all, of these colors have, um, all of these colors are particular classes of compounds that we're increasingly seeing act via our microbiome, where they do things like suppress pro-inflammatory bacteria like E. coli and others. Uh, they also promote the growth of beneficial bacteria that do things like produce butyrate, uh, uh, an essential metabolite for the cells that line our gut, uh, our gut barriers. Unfortunately, if you consider the source of, uh, source of food closest to my house uh, in Pacific Beach, uh, just, a few miles, uh, just a few miles south of here, uh, that source is this. And uh, when I take my daughter there, uh, she's certainly confronted with a, a very broad array of bright colors, right? Um, but what I think is ironic is that their motto is too much good stuff. And you might suspect that all the good stuff had been systematically stripped out of all of these, uh, all of these highly processed products and replaced with synthetic analogs that have completely different implications for our gut microbiome and for our health. And there's an increasing uh, amount of concern, not just in the autism community, but generally about the role that these ultra-processed foods have in health. So, uh, for example, this, um, th this, this article uh, from, the, uh, from the AMA uh, a couple of years ago 
uh, highlighted uh, what doctors are saying about a lot of the dangers of ultra-processed foods at the moment. And uh, a couple of quotes from this article, which are absolutely not the sort of thing you want to hear from, M- from an MD about your diet, are things like the health consequences of ultra-processed foods are dire, and uh, that the concerns include recent documentation of an in- increased risk of type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and dementia. Uh, which, um, which again is of uh, considerable, uh, considerable concern at the moment. And I'll talk, I'll talk at the end of the talk about how some of our uh, work on Alzheimer's and diet may be applicable to, uh, to studies of autism as well. The problem, though, is that, uh, is that studies of diet are really hard and the results are often either unclear or just consistent with what you knew already and what your grandparents have been telling you about what you should eat already. So, uh, for example, this paper that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2011 is still one of the largest studies of its kind, where a group then at the Harvard School of Public Health, led by Darish Mazafarian, uh, looked at changes in diet and lifestyle and the relationship to weight gain in men and women, where they tracked 120,000 people over 20 years and looked at every item that they ate uh, to, to look at what had an impact on weight gain and on weight loss. And, um, and so they were doing this primarily with reference to, uh, to, to obesity. And I have to tell you that the stereotypes that you have, on, uh, that you have in your head right now of what thin people eat and what fat people eat were exactly reinforced by the study. So, for example, the food that they found that was, uh, that, that was most associated with weight loss, and if you're thinking in your head right now about uh, what is stereotypically associated with, uh, with people who are thin, uh, you're probably thinking of something like yogurt, which had the largest effect size in the study. And then at the other end of the spectrum, if you're thinking about stereotypically uh, what do people who are heavier uh, tend to eat a lot of, um, you're probably thinking of potato chips. Uh, or something like it, which, uh, w- which was the thing that caused the most weight gain in the study. But what was surprising was the size of the effect, right? So even if you look at the, uh, the food most beneficial for weight loss, what they saw is that each extra serving of yogurt every day led to a weight loss of uh, about uh, 372 grams um, over, over four years, right? So, um, so, so about, uh, about a third of a pound. Whereas, in contrast, uh, each additional serving per day of chips uh, led to a weight gain uh, of about three quarters of a kilo, about a pound and a half, over those four years. So, um, in other words, the implication of this is that if every single day uh, you were going to eat a serving of chips and you virtuously gave it up and you ate a serving of yogurt instead, after doing that every single day for four years, making the right choice 1,460 times in a row, it's only going to change your weight by a couple of pounds. So, um, so, so this is perhaps not very impressive for something that, uh, that, that's, going to, uh, that, that's going to require such um, an act of willpower, right? But what this is marking is that these are population averages for 120,000 people. And so this is what happens on average, uh, but everyone is different. And so being able to find the source of that variation is really critical because making the substitution is going to cause some people to lose 20 pounds, but other people are going to gain 18 pounds. And so on average, it largely washes out when you look at the whole population. But the individual results are very different for individual people. And uh, we know that this is true for autism as well, where uh, a lot of families try uh, different, um, different diets with their kids, and the same diet that works for one person just doesn't work for another person at all. Now, if we can understand the basis for that individual variability, uh, that could have a tremendous impact. 
Now, there are some general guidelines. Um, so Mediterranean diet, for example, is generally considered good for a lot of different things, including cardiovascular health and, uh, as I'll show you, mental health. And um, this can even have an impact on autism. So there was one study, um, one, one study that came out uh, earlier this year looking at the impact of consuming Mediterranean diet uh, during pregnancy. And what they, uh, what they saw in the, Boston, in the Boston birth cohort was that Mediterranean diet in mothers led to a 26% lower uh, level of uh, neurodevelopmental disorders in children, including autism. However, how I found the study uh, was I wasn't looking for that. I was looking for any evidence that Mediterranean diet, which has been tried for a whole lot of things in adults, had ever been tried for autism in children. And what I found was zero studies on Mediterranean diet in children with autism, despite the fact that pediatrics uh, guidelines say that the same foods are healthy in children and adults. And this seems like a very natural and very easy thing to try out. Uh, to see whether it has the same kinds of effects that it's had on a range of other disorders. Now, you probably know that Mediterranean diet is often promoted as, uh, as, as being good for your physical health, but you may not know that it's also, uh, it's also been tested um, in, in terms of your mental health. And uh, the, there was a remarkable study that was conducted in Australia uh, about five years ago called the SMILES trial, where essentially the idea was to take people newly diagnosed with major depressive disorder and put them on the Mediterranean diet and see whether there was any improvement uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in their depression symptoms. And what they found in the study was remarkable because what they found was that, uh, was that these people who were newly diagnosed with depression hadn't been treated yet. When they were put on the Mediterranean diet, 32% of them showed recovery of symptoms, which is comparable to the best pharmaceutical interventions for major depressive disorder, like SSRIs. And you might wonder, was it really the food that was doing it, or was it, the improve, uh, was it all of the personal contact with nutritional counsellors and with, uh, with research study coordinators and all the other things that might affect your mood by essentially providing a network of social interactions for you? And so con to control for this, they also uh, put another arm of the study on a control diet where they got just as much interaction, uh, but what it was was a low-fat diet instead. And on the low-fat diet, instead of 32% recovery, they only showed 8% recovery of symptoms. So that's what pinned it down to the Mediterranean diet, rather than just the concept of dietary intervention as a whole. So on the one hand, this is amazing, right? If you have something as difficult and intractable as major depressive disorder, uh, you, can get, uh, you, you can get substantial recovery for uh, a third of the people involved in this. They followed it up with another trial called Healthy Med, where they compared uh, a Mediterranean diet to the best, uh, the best standard of care non-pharmaceutical intervention. And they found that the Mediterranean diet outperformed uh, group counselling, which, uh, which is the best non-pharmaceutical intervention that's available currently. Uh, but even, even, with, uh, even with these promising results, if 32% of the people have improvement in symptoms, what that means is that it doesn't work for two-thirds of the people. And so uh, if you were going to be in this group where you weren't going to respond to the diet, wouldn't you want to know up front, or maybe after only a week or two on the diet, that it wasn't going to work for you? And even if you stuck it out for months, ultimately the results would be unsuccessful. 
So this gets back to the, uh, the need to have personalized predictions. And uh, an amazing paper from Aran Segal's group at the Weizmann Institute that was published in Cell um, almost a decade ago now looked at the basis for personalized nutrition, um, not with respect to mood, but with respect to blood glucose control. And, um, and uh, so what they were looking at was glycemic responses, which is basically the pulse of, uh, of, of blood sugar that you get uh, after you eat a meal. And so, um, and so what they were looking at here was basically uh, how consistent are these responses to the same diet, one person to another, and what could they use to predict differences in those responses. And so what they did is they got 800 people, and they hooked them up to continuous, uh, continuous glucose monitoring, um, and they fed them a defined sequence of diets so that they could isolate the impact of each food on uh, each individual's blood glucose over this period of two weeks. And so what they saw is when they averaged the results for, 800, for all 800 people, they perfectly recaptured the published glycemic index values, uh, like you could look up in a textbook of uh, what, what impact each food has on blood sugar. But what they found was that for different people, the individualized glycemic index was completely different one person to another. So, uh, for example, uh, for most people, tomatoes are a pretty healthy food, but they found one person whose blood sugar spiked every time he ate tomatoes, and when he cut them out of his diet, he did much better. Uh, similarly, beans um, were uh, very good for a lot of people, very bad for a subset of the, uh, the people that they looked at in terms of blood glucose. And um, they were able to do a whole lot of uh, diets. So, uh, so to, test, to test out their prediction, um, they, made a, they made up diets that had the same number of calories, the same balance of micronutrients that were based on small substitutions, like, for example, uh, substituting sweet potatoes for regular potatoes, which have opposite effects on different people. They were able to show on a new group of 100 people that uh, the precision diets that they made uh, kept blood, uh, could either, for the same person, keep the blood glucose under control or could send it haywire, depending on which direction they went in. And out of all of the things that they measured, um, uh, what, uh, including blood tests, including questionnaires, including a lot of measurements of the body, uh, including food diaries, the thing that was the best predictor of uh, those individualized uh, glucose responses was the microbiome. And uh, one thing that was a big uh, punchline of the study is that for many people, rice is a pretty healthy food, right? You probably think of that as, uh, as pretty good for you. But for a fairly large fraction of the people that they looked at, it was actually worse for their blood glucose to eat rice than it was to eat ice cream. And their microbes were the deciding factor in that. So on learning this, people typically have two questions. Uh, the first is, uh, you know, is there a test that I can do to find out if I'm in the category of people who, can, uh, who should eat rice or the category of people who should eat ice cream? And uh, the answer is that there, there is. They commercialize this through a company called Day2, although it's not currently doing anything direct to consumer. Uh, it's working with large organizations instead as, uh, uh, for, for health maintenance. But then the second and more interesting question is, is perhaps, suppose I do this test and I find out I'm in the category of people who should eat rice, could I change my microbiome to get into the category of people who should eat ice cream instead? And uh, that might sound kind of frivolous for this example, um, but in the context of cancer care, as I'll mention briefly right at the end, it can be deadly serious. Anyway, so, th so this was a great application of the use of machine learning on very large and complex microbiome data sets to be able to make these very detailed predictions about, uh, about uh, how the microbiome influences our response to particular diets. But we can now build predictive models for a large number of different traits uh, related to health from the microbiome. 
And uh, one of the things my lab has been working on for the last 20 years now uh, is obesity. And today, for example, I can tell you with about 90% accuracy if you're lean or obese solely by looking at the microbes in your gut and reading out their DNA. So on the one hand, this is a really cool trick from a technical perspective. But on the other hand, we don't think it has a lot of promise, uh, either commercially or medically, as a test for obesity. And the reason why is that I bet you can tell which of these people is obese without doing any DNA sequencing at all, right? But on the other hand, if you try to do that classification task, lean or obese, uh, using a random forest classifier, you can only do it with about 50% accuracy on human genes, whereas you can do it with 90% accuracy on microbial ones. And uh, we're learning more and more about all the things that the gut microbiome provides as a very sensitive record of events in your life. Uh, so, for example, how you're born, uh, whether it's by C-section or by vaginal delivery, leaves traces in your microbiome that if you have autoimmune diseases like IBD, we can even see as an adult decades later uh, in, in large data sets like from the American Gut Project. Uh, it also contains a record of your diet, uh, both early in life with breastfeeding um, and then later on, depending on what you eat. And I'll talk about that later in the context of the American Gut Project. Uh, it, it has a record of a lot of different health conditions, as well as the medications that you take to address those conditions. Uh, it even has a record of how much exercise you do and uh, of, of the physical locations that you're in. So we see very large geographic signals around the world, uh, even when you correct for different lifestyle. And we're also learning a lot more about how the gut microbiome affects processes throughout your body. Uh, so, for example, it plays a basic role in digestion um, of nutrients uh, and uh, degrading xenobiotics. Uh, it helps in the immune system, uh, including the maturation and function of the immune system. And I'll uh, talk about that in the context of maternal immune activation, uh, a model of autism fairly soon. Uh, it helps protect, and, uh, protect, pathogens, uh, protect against pathogens and clear them from the body. And it's also intimately involved in brain develop development and behavior, uh, which is something new that we've only really been uh, learning a lot about in the last five years or so. Uh, but the gut microbiome can also have a lot of negative effects when it goes wrong. Um, so as I mentioned, one of the first things it was linked to was metabolic syndrome, uh, including obesity, uh, diabetes, there's a lot of connections. Uh, gastrointestinal disorders, perhaps not very, uh, not, not very surprising that your gut microbiome is linked to that. Uh, it's linked to cancer, uh, so that's what I'll be talking about at another symposium across campus this afternoon. Um, and then of most interest to, uh, to this group, um, the uh, negative effects of aberrant microbiomes include a wide range of neurological and neurodevelopmental conditions. So mostly I've been talking about the gut microbiome, uh, because the gut microbiome is where most of, the, uh, most of the microbes in your body are. But it's important to keep in mind that the gut is not Vegas, uh, and that what happens in the gut does not stay in the gut. <laughs> and uh, there's this thing called the gut-brain axis that we're uh, learning is increasingly important, where the vagus nerve uh, provides this bidirectional communication between the gut and the brain. And uh, that, that connection is modified by a lot of different things. So uh, some, of those, uh, some of those things include chemical signals, um, there's also immune interaction, uh, and there's also direct neuromodulation where bacteria in the gut can, can trigger an action potential in the vagus nerve on a very short time scale and lead to direct electrical signaling between the gut and the brain. 
so one thing that's particularly important, um, including, uh, including in the specific context of individuals with autism, uh, is the HPA axis. And essentially uh, what this is is an evolved response where if you're uh, reacting to stress, like you're being chased, you know, chased by a predator or something, um, that's when the HPA axis is going to be, uh, is, is going to be activated. So we've all heard of the, fly, uh, of the fight or flight response, and what that is is our body's way of preparing us to confront or escape a threat. And so this instinctual reaction is governed by the HP axis. But what is the HPA axis and how does it work? Well, um, so the HPA axis is a hypothalamic uh, pituitary adrenal axis, and it's our body's command center for stress response. And when we perceive a threat, the HPA axis kicks into action, and it releases hormones that prepare us to face the challenge. So let's break down the components of this powerful system. Um, when the body perceives a stressor, uh, the hypothalamus, which is a region in the brain, uh, re releases corticotropin-releasing hormone, which is CRH. And so then the CRH signals the pituitary to release adrenocorticotropic hormone, which is ACTH. Um, and uh, ACTH stimulates the adrenal glands to produce and release cortisol. And uh, cortisol is one of the main stress hormones in our body. So, um, so cortisol, in turn, uh, influences synthesis and release of neurotransmitters in the brain. So it impacts neurotransmitters including serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and GABA. So uh, while the HPA axis is mainly associated with the body's response to stress, it also uh, influences the production and regulation of neurotransmitters, which is how it's linked to mental health and emotional well-being. And so disruptions in the HPA axis can contribute to imbalances in neurotransmitter levels, which can affect mood, mental health, things like repetitive behavior, and so on. So um, if we shift gears to focus on the gut's role in all of this, uh, the trillions of microbes that live in our gut play a crucial role in the stress response. And so uh, the big problem is that disruptions in the gut microbes can change our body's reaction, even without a direct threat. So in other words, if that lion is gone uh, and not chasing you, if your gut microbes are incorrect, they can, add, they can inappropriately be activating the stress response and locking it into its active space, uh, active state rather. So, um, so some of the ways that microbes uh, affect brain development via the gut-brain axis and is that the disrupted gut microbes by themselves can cause an increase in cortisol levels and that mimics the body's stress response. So um, this, is a, this is a really important revelation in our understanding of how our gut health is linked to our mental health and overall development. So um, some, of the factors that, uh, some of the factors that are involved include mental stress, uh, poor diet, especially ultra-processed foods and foods that contain additives uh, like emulsifiers that can, uh, that can strip off the lining of the gut, lead to gut barrier dysfunction, uh, also known as leaky gut. Um, infection and illness, uh, and then antibiotics, um, perhaps not very surprisingly, uh, can also have a major impact on the microbes that are in our gut. And this can be either good or bad. Uh, so, for example, if you have uh, bacterial infections that are uh, causing a problem, uh, you may be able to treat them with antibiotics. But overuse of antibiotics can lead to a permanent de degradation. 
So then understanding the various uh, aspects of the autism spectrum give us some uh, insight into uh, the complex experiences that different individuals have. And, um, uh, and uh, as, uh, as, as I'm sure you all know, uh, autism diagnosis relies on behavioral assessment, but uh, other factors, um, uh, including GI issues and uh, properties of the immune system, give us some additional insights into its complexity. So, um, so uh, from mouse models, um, and it's less clear whether this is true in humans, but uh, there's certainly some exciting research in that direction. Uh, maternal immune activation uh, can be very it can be very useful for uh, exploring pregnancy uh, infection during pregnancy and autism risk. And we think that the reason why Mediterranean diet might have this beneficial effect in pregnancy um, is that Mediterranean diet uh, is highly anti-inflammatory and would uh, reduce the risk of an inappropriate immune response under these circumstances. So um, with this mouse model, uh, what, what you do is essentially you take pregnant mice and you inject them with a simple double-stranded RNA that simulates, uh, that simulates viral attack. And uh, this leads to a whole series of behavioral abnormalities, including impaired social interaction, uh, decreased communication, repetitive behavior, anxiety, and abnormal sensory motor gating. And uh, this is coupled to uh, a whole lot of changes in, uh, in the nervous system, including, cell defi uh, cell, uh, including deficits in Purkinje cells, uh, including delayed neural migration, uh, decreased uh, connections between neurons, altered neurotransmitter signaling, and, uh, and enlarged ventricles in the brain. So you have a whole suite of different behaviors there. And uh, it's been work done by Sarkis Masmanian at Caltech, where we were involved in some uh, later iterations of this, uh, looking into more mechanistic detail. But in uh, Sarkis's original work, uh, published in Cell in, uh, in, in 2013, uh, they were able to use the offspring of these uh, maternally immune-activated mice uh, which showed autism, uh, which showed autism-related behaviours, and uh, one one thing that was key to this was uh, leaky gut issues, um, similar to uh, similar to some children with ASD, where essentially what you have is you have a breakdown of the barrier that keeps the microbes inside the gut and keeps them from uh, from interacting with the bloodstream and the immune system. And uh, one thing that was particularly remarkable about this 2013 paper uh, was that uh, Sarkis's group was able to show that if you took uh, a microbe out of, the, uh, out of the normal human gut microbiota, that microbe could act as a probiotic in, uh, in, in, uh, in these mice that had features of autism, where the probiotic was able to alter the composition of the gut microbiota, was able to store or restore uh, the barrier integrity of the epithelial barrier, it was able to release the leakage of particular GI metabolites, especially one called 4-EPS, or 4-ethylphenyl sulfate, that was particularly important in this. It restored the serometabolite balance, and it improved a series of behavioral abnormalities. So in particular, uh, it was able to improve the, uh, the, the cognitive function and reduce gut barrier dis uh, dysfunction, although um, the mice had the same uh, level of communication um, changes as, uh, as, as mice without the probiotic treated, uh, treatment. So, um, so what, what we found very exciting about this, and, uh, and, and as, as we described in the commentary on this paper, is that it provides a pathway uh, towards discovering new probiotics that could be useful for, uh, for autism and for other neurodevelopmental issues, where the idea is that in the, uh, in the, in the laboratory, uh, you, can look for, uh, you, you can look for treatments um, that modify 
uh, the balance between healthy and diseased states of microbes and then look at the metabolites that those microbes are producing to get at the mechanistic detail. Uh, you can then do a, a preclinical trial again in mice where you're trying out different treatments that could be uh, related to antibiotics that are going to target <laughs> bad kinds of bacteria that are in there. Uh, prebiotics, which are essentially food for the good bacteria to increase their, um, uh, in increase their frequency, uh, or probiotics, uh, introducing the bacteria themselves to try to move people out of the, um, uh, sorry, to move the mice out of the bad state and into the good state that restores their functioning. Um, and then the idea is that after getting promising results in animal studies, you would move into clinical trials where you would try out the same kinds of things in patients and see if they have the same effect in humans that they do in mice. And this step is extremely important because there's a tremendous amount of work in curing all kinds of different conditions in mice um, that doesn't translate to humans because it's always uh, really important to remember the biological differences between those two systems. And so uh, it's very easy to get excited by animal model research, but until you've been able to demonstrate it in a clinical trial for, in, in humans, it's very high risk to try things based on that animal research. Um, so one, um, so one, one particular uh, rating scale that's very frequently used in childhood autism is, is CARS, the Childhood Autism Rating Scale. And uh, this tool is used to assess the severity of uh, autism symptoms in, ch in children ages two and above. And so the different uh, elements of the scale are communication difficulties, motor difficulties, social impediments, repetitive behavior, and sensitivity to change in stimulation. And um, a truly remarkable uh, paper that was, um, that, that was uh, published by a group in Arizona, uh, including my very good friends, um, uh, Rosie Krajmelnik-Brown at uh, Arizona State University and Greg Caparese at Northern Arizona University, as well as uh, Dr. Jim Adams um, at uh, ASU, who led the trial. What they did is they looked at 18 children uh, with ASD and they gave them a series of fecal transplants, uh, 10 weeks of fecal transplants, um, and then they tracked the children over another, uh, over another two years uh, to do clinical follow-up to see what were the long-term effects of these fecal transplants. Now, uh, I'm not sure how familiar you all are with this idea of fecal transplants, so I'll just explain that a little better. Uh, what this is, is it's a map of human microbiome configurations that we uh, developed in the Human Microbiome Project. And essentially each dot on this map is uh, a single microbiome at a single time point from a single part of the body of one person. And you can see that the clustering on this map is at almost like different continents. The mouth, the skin, the vaginal and the fecal microbiomes are very different from one another. So we have these completely different kinds of microbes in different parts of the same body. Uh, what I'm going to show you now, and this is work we did with Alex Krutz and Mike Sadowski at the University of Minnesota, um, uh, what I'm going to show you now is uh, fecal samples from people with C. diff, a uh, very, uh, very nasty kind of uh, antibiotic-induced diarrhea. And you can see that those orange spikes, they're in a completely different region from the healthy stool samples, which are in the bottom there at brown, in, in brown. And so you get this completely different configuration of the microbiome in your gut if you have C. diff compared to if you're healthy. So what's going to happen is that uh, four of those C. diff patients are going to get a fecal transplant from one donor who, has, uh, as you can see, is in the healthy range down the bottom, defined by the healthy people in the Human Microbiome Project. 
And uh, the actual fecal transplant uh, um, uh, is, is uh, typically done by colonoscopy. So this, is, um, so, so this is Bill Sanborn, who used to be our chief of GI here at UC San Diego, about to do his first fecal transplant uh, with this huge grin on his face and, uh, and, and with hospital-grade stool from, from a nonprofit called Open Biome. So even though what we're talking about is literally using poop, the FDA regulates poop as a drug. And the reason why they regulate it as a drug is that it's a, biologic, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a physical substance that's known to modify clinical endpoints. So you are not allowed to just run out and do this yourself, uh, and your doctor is also not allowed to just run out and do it, uh, do it themselves. Uh, what you have to do is you have to uh, prove that the stool was manufactured according to GMP and GLP processes. So you have to do a lot of testing to make sure there's no pathogens in it. Uh, you, have to, you have to purify it in various ways. Um, you have to make sure there's no antibiotic resistance markers in the bacteria that are going to be transmitted because that has led to adverse events, including death, in some clinical trials. So uh, you need to be really careful about this stuff. But uh, on the other hand, the results are pretty amazing. So remember that, I, uh, remember that I told you that these different parts of the body have totally different microbiomes. And so uh, the C. diff patients that we're seeing here have a completely different stool microbiome from any healthy person that we ever saw in the Human Microbiome Project. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to animate their microbiome journeys through time, uh, where each frame in this is going to be one day in the lives of these patients who've had severe recurrent diarrhea, multiple events a day, to be eligible for this trial over at least two years. And uh, what you can see is that immediately, in just two or three days, all their microbiome ecologies completely reset to the healthy state, uh, and then they stay there during months and months of follow-up, which is what I'm showing you now. And coupled to this, all of their C. diff, uh, their C. diff symptoms were gone. And in fact, antibiotics for recurrent C. diff are less than 30% effective, whereas fecal transplant for C. diff has been 90% effective plus in clinical trials. And so the FDA is exercising a, dis a discretionary waiver where although they uh, reserve the right to regulate fecal transplant for C. diff, you're allowed to do that right now as a clinical procedure uh, without additional approval and without getting an IND. So, um, so this is game-changing for C. diff, and a lot of what we're doing in my lab is to try to figure out uh, for what other categories of patients you can identify an aberration in the microbiome, uh, whether it's as severe as this or whether it's more subtle like it is, for example, in obesity and in autism, um, and try to uh, figure out how to guide it back uh, into the healthy state. And I was talking about this trial in Arizona, uh, where what they did was they did it directly with 18 uh, children with, with autism. And so the drawbacks to the study are that it's open label and that it's a relatively small number of people. But the results were truly remarkable because for both GI symptoms um, and for cognitive symptoms, there was substantial improvement uh, during the 10 weeks of the trial, but also two years later, uh, the, the 18 patients that they did this on were significantly improved. And so what we really need is more research along these lines, especially randomized controlled trials on larger numbers of patients, because unless you do a placebo-controlled uh, randomized trial, it's really difficult to uh, make sure that there's no unconscious biases sneaking in, either in assessment or um, in how parents are treating their children. And so uh, more research on this is really important before it becomes routine in clinical use, the way it's now routine in clinical use for C. diff after extensive research. Um, so to help fill in this research, we've been turning to citizen science to understand uh, microbiomes. 
And so um, th- this, is a, this is a scene from during COVID where we were sending out uh, thousands of kits in the California Teachers Study and to other large-scale cohorts to try to understand uh, the impact of SARS-CoV-2 um, on the microbiome and the impact of the microbiome on SARS-CoV-2 resistance and recovery. Um, so the project has been, uh, has, has been on hold uh, for, for a few years uh, while we were tied up with uh, this and COVID testing on campus, uh, but it's about to reopen again to general participation. And what we have at this point is we have 32,000 samples uh, from, uh, from over 80 countries, uh, eight of those with more than 100 samples. And um, uh, over, uh, over 85 uh, scientific papers have been published using the data we've collected already. And uh, most of the samples are fecal samples, although we do have a number from other body sites. And uh, what we're trying to do in this study uh, is, uh, as I mentioned, um, effectively figure out uh, for all of these for all of these different diseases that have been uh, suggested to be linked to the microbiome, how do we find the good and the bad places on these microbiome maps? And then how do we go beyond finding out where we are? How do we develop a kind of microbiome GPS that tells you where am I right now? Uh, where do I want to go? And how do I get there? Whether it's something that seems as extreme as fecal transplant, uh, whether it's something in between, so this experimental therapies like phage therapy, for example, where you use viruses to kill particular populations of bacteria, uh, improved drugs, including improved antibiotics that have narrow spectrums of action, uh, probiotics, uh, prebiotics, which, um, which, which, as I mentioned, are basically uh, molecules that you can use to feed the good bacteria, so like dietary fiber and so on. Um, and then diet would be the easiest way to, uh, to, to achieve these modifications if you can stick to it over the long term and if you can find the right diet for you. And one thing that astonished us uh, in the American gut population when we looked at what affected the microbiome across the first few thousand patients, uh, sorry, the first few thousand participants that we looked at, is uh, what really had a big effect and what had a small effect, because those results were completely surprising to us. And what we're looking at here is uh, what's called a power curve, where you're looking at the number of people per group that you need um, versus the statistical power of the test. So all you really need to know is that a steeper line means that it's easier to detect the differences between people in two groups um, and the steeper the line is, the fewer people you need to see those differences. So if something's a really obvious difference, you only need a handful of people, like a dozen, to see the differences. Whereas if something's really subtle, you might need hundreds or thousands or even millions of people to see it. And so some of the relatively steep lines on, on the graph are things like age, which you would have expected affects your microbiome, inflammatory bowel disease, um, also not very surprising, antibiotic use, uh, again, not very surprising. But uh, the collection season, so what time of year the sample was, set, uh, was sent in, had a fairly large uh, effect, and we didn't expect that. Uh, BMI, uh, where we know that we can classify people as lean or obese from the microbiome with very high accuracy, even despite that, it has a small effect compared to a lot of the other things that we looked at. And things like how much sleep you get at night has a larger impact than BMI, for example, and we didn't expect that. And then similarly, uh, alcohol consumption uh, we thought was going to have a huge impact, but it was relatively modest compared to other things. But the steepest curve on this graph is the number of different species of plants that people consumed 
in the two weeks before they sent in their sample, where species and plants includes uh, you know every different item that you have in your salad, includes different spices, includes different kinds of grains that you're eating, all of those kinds of things. And, uh, and, and the largest impact we saw of any of the variables that we looked at was between people who only ate a handful of different plant species and people who ate a very large number, uh, 35 or more. So, uh, so in other words, um, although it's good to eat your greens, if the way you're implementing that is you're eating a giant plate of broccoli or kale or something else that you don't like, um, you can relieve yourself of that burden because it's much more important to eat a lot of different kinds of plants than it is to eat a huge amount of one kind of plant, at least in terms of what we can see in the microbiome data. But that's also reinforced by things like the guidelines for Mediterranean diet and things derived from it, where a lot of that is about eating a wide range of different vegetable, uh, vegetable-forward meals. Um, one thing people always ask about is what about, uh, what, what about uh, vegans? And we looked at a whole, uh, a whole range of self-reported dietary categories, and none of them had any impact on the gut microbiome that we could determine. And so initially this was surprising. Uh, later, uh, we realized that you could be a vegan where you mostly eat salads, or you could be a vegan where you mostly eat chips, and those have a much, much larger impact on your microbiome than whether you sometimes eat meat. So, uh, so, so again, this was all very counterintuitive, and self-reported categories were less useful than we'd expected. Um, but we've, uh, we've done a lot of spin-offs of this project, which is now under the larger umbrella of the MicroZeta in initiative. So the British gut was one of the uh, first uh, larger-scale things that we did. Um, looking at autism, uh, we, we have been doing that uh, since the project launched in 2013, uh, driven in part by uh, Jack Gilbert, uh, my uh, co-founder of the project, and his personal interest um, uh, with, with his son, who, uh, who, who was on the spectrum. But also we've looked at a lot of other things, including ICU patients, um, a study on depression, uh, stuff looking at the uh, oral microbiome and various others. So uh, one, one thing that we implemented through the uh, American Gut Program, uh, American Gut Project as a research platform uh, was sponsored by the Pitt Hopkins uh, Foundation. Um, so what we're looking at is we're looking at the role of the gut microbiome in Pitt Hopkins syndrome. And so Pet hopkins syndrome is something that is heavily influenced by human genes, where TCF4 mutation is a particular marker of Pet hopkins syndrome. Um, and it leads to distinct facial characteristics, uh, delayed motor and cognitive development, um, and then epilepsy and GI problems are common. So, um, uh, so, so a lot of the goal of, of this kind of research is not necessarily to find a cure for a particular, uh, particular condition that's involved in human neurodiversity, uh, but to get rid of some of the side effects that are definitely unpleasant, like uh, epilepsy and GI problems. And this is true in autism as well. So one thing we found is that a particular uh, microbe called Clostridium boltii was uh, substantially enriched in individuals with uh, Pitt Hopkins syndrome. And um, uh, I apologize for this section, which is a bit more technical than the rest of the talk, just showing you some of the data uh, that, uh, that, that um, uh, allows us to pin down the kinds of microbes that are involved in Pitt Hopkins. And uh, what was interesting is that when we com uh, compared Pitt Hopkins to the uh, individuals with autism in the American gut data set, uh, we saw very uh, similar relationships there. So you can see that the uh, red trace and the orange, uh, sorry, the red trace and the green trace on that graph, which are Pitt Hopkins and autism, are very similar to each other and very different from the individuals that uh, that, that were without uh, ASD symptoms. 
And uh, one thing we thought was interesting about that, uh, this was that the uh, relationship with Cibotier may be age-mediated. So essentially what we saw is that the, uh, older, uh, the older people were uh, the less Cibotier they had. And so um, one, one thing that's of particular interest in autism is whether we're, seeing a, uh, whether we're seeing a relationship based on accelerated or delayed aging of the microbiome. And uh, so being able to understand this in the context of models that relate the microbiome to age overall is, an, is a particularly interesting and exciting direction. Uh, we also did metabolomics uh, on this in collaboration with Peter Durrestein, um, uh, my close collaborator in the Skag School of Pharmacy at UC San Diego. And again, this is a bit technical, uh, but essentially what we saw is uh, a whole range of different modifications of bile acids that were much more common in Pitt Hopkins than, than, uh, the, than in the control individuals from the same families that we looked at. And so uh, bile acids are emerging as a really exciting area of gut microbiome science at the moment, where uh, through, through advances in mass spec, uh, mass spectrometry technology, we are now seeing thousands of new bile acids that are not in the textbook and were not previously known to be uh, found in humans, but seem to be key mediators of a lot of diseases, especially immune-linked diseases. And so we're very excited about the potential there. Now, um, so, uh, so, so, uh, so this, this kind of work and this demonstration that the citizen science platforms can be a really useful way uh, to reach different populations is all very exciting. But uh, I, I do have to caution you about one important aspect of microbiome research. And, and I should ask at this point, um, how, how many of you have either had your own uh, microbiome sequenced or had the microbiome of someone, uh, of, of a relative sequenced? Anyone in this audience? Uh, a couple of you, okay, but not very many. So, uh, so that, that's actually good because what I have to tell you is that although, um, although this technology is very useful in research, we think it's not quite ready for broad application yet. And the reason why is that if you take the exact same data and you run it through analysis software, you get completely different results. And it's even worse if you take analyses from different labs that are using different methods. Uh, but even if you have the exact same data, what I'm showing you here uh, is, is data from a project that we did on IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, just run through a, different, a bunch of different software pipelines. And so uh, each, each line on this, uh, each horizontal line, is exactly the same data uh, analyzed at the phylum level, so a very broad classification of bacteria by different software packages. And what, what you can see is that even along a horizontal line for the different software packages, uh, what, you, what you assign the sequences to in terms of the major groups can be completely different from one package to another. And uh, this, is, uh, this is really problematic, right? Because, uh, you know, if you take this to your physician and uh, you're telling them, uh, you know, hey, doc, I have this wonderful news for you, which is I had my kid's microbiome done. They found these thousand species that are in, uh, in, in their gut. Uh, so with all this data, you can tell me what's wrong and how to fix it, right? Uh, you know, what's your doctor going to do with that, especially with this variability? If you sent it to several different labs or you run it through different software, uh, you get completely different results. So, um, so fortunately, uh, we have a solution to this problem um, that was uh, led by Jamie Morton, uh, who, was, uh, who was a grad student with me, then did a postdoc at the Flatiron Institute with Rich Bonneau, uh, and um, then went to NICHD. 
And uh, so Jamie uh, led this article in Nature Neuroscience just recently, um, looking at uh, l- looking at um, <clears throat> a multi a multi level analysis of the gut brain axis, focusing on ways to use a technique called principal balances uh, to reconcile the microbial profiles that you get in different studies. And uh, essentially what we're doing in this study is we're looking at children with ASD uh, versus neurotypical children and um, controlling it for age and sex, where we can then do a differential analysis where we compare the abundance of different microbes in the gut. Um, And then besides the gut microbiome, we also repeated it for other kinds of data, such as metabolite profiles and so on, and then uh, then compared the results across different studies. So, uh, and again, I apologize for the uh, technical detail on this graph, but essentially what we were able to see was uh, autism-specific metabolic pathways that were reliably associated with gut microbes across these different studies when we used a kind of statistical approach called principal balances, which uses the ratios between different kinds of bacteria to account for some of the problems uh, when when you try to use relative abundance data, which is what we typically have in the microbiome space. And so uh, what, was, what was exciting about this is that we were able to see across many different studies the same kinds of microbes coming up as prevalent. And, uh, and, so, um, and so essentially what we were able to see was uh, significant microbial differences uh, in the ASD kids versus neurotypical kids, where what we saw in ASD was a whole lot of inflammation-related microbes, especially things like pro-inflammatory uh, proteobacteria, which had been reported in a number of other studies, and which were also uh, among the kinds of bacteria that were reduced in the fecal transplantation study in Arizona that I showed you earlier on. And so again, this is really exciting uh, because uh, because it's widely it's widely believed that there is a role for inflammation and in autism, and especially in some of the more uh, unpleasant associate uh, pleasant, uh, unpleasant symptoms associated with autism that you would want to be able to relieve. And so uh, again, this prompts anti-inflammatory dietary strategies, which we've seen very effective in other settings, including rheumatoid arthritis, uh, and work that we've been doing with Monica Guma here at UC San Diego, where uh, anti anti inflammatory diet for RA was able to uh, was able to relieve symptoms to a similar extent as uh, as, as state of the art uh, state of the art medication. Um, so I'm just going to end with uh, another technology that has not been applied to autism yet, but where we think there's tremendous opportunity, and this is very closely linked to what I've been telling you about anti-inflammatory diet. So um, Alzheimer's disease uh, is, is a major problem in society at the moment and uh, a, a major focus of what my lab is, uh, is, is working on. Um, and uh, as, as part of a large NIH-supported U19 project, uh, we've been piggybacking on a number of different nutritional intervention studies, including MIND, uh, BEAT-AD, and POINTER, where uh, essentially what these, uh, what these studies are doing uh, is, is they're looking at different diets that have been shown to be effective uh, against AD in smaller-scale trials, and then they're doing a clinical intervention, and we're looking at the role of the microbiome and the metabolome in mediating the, res- the, the response to those diets in the context of Alzheimer's. And uh, this just gives you a sense of the different people and organizations that are involved in this. So, uh, um, so, so, one, one, of the, um, so, so one, one of the key pieces of technology that we developed in the U19 uh, is this idea of reference data-driven metabolomics. And this was led by Peter Durrestein and uh, members of his lab, where the, the, the problem is that most molecules that we see in a particular specimen, like a specimen of blood or stool, 
We don't know what those molecules are when, uh, when we detect them by mass spectrometry. Uh, we know that we have a pattern that relates to some molecule, but we don't know what the molecule is. And so uh, inspired by some of the work that we had done in the microbiome, where we used to face a very similar problem, where most of the sequences that we found, uh, we couldn't relate to any organism that we knew about because they weren't in the databases yet. Uh, Peter set up something similar for food, where the idea is that uh, if we took a whole lot of food items and ran them through the mass spec, we wouldn't know what the molecules were, but we'd know if they came from an apple or from a salmon or whatever. Uh, and so then we could take clinical samples like blood or like stool and look at all the unknown molecules in them and ask which of those unknown molecules came from which food to provide a diet readout. And uh, this, is really, this is really important in populations where you're not able to do a food diary, you're not able to do a food frequency questionnaire, but you still really need to understand what the individual was eating. So we think it has a lot of potential in Alzheimer's. We think it has a lot of people, uh, potential in other populations uh, where there are substantial barriers to communication. Um, so as basic ground truth on this, uh, so I told, you that, uh, I, I told you that being an omnivore versus a vegetarian didn't have much of an impact on your microbiome, but you should certainly expect it to have a big impact on what molecules from what foods we can detect in your bloodstream. And so uh, one of the early tests of this was just doing a principal uh, components analysis of the counts of different food from different individuals who were either omnivores or vegetarians. And so what, what you can see is that in this map of the uh, overall food, uh, food item profiles, the omnivores and the vegetarians separated out very nicely. And then the particular foods that made the differences were exactly what you'd expect uh, with, the, uh, with the omnivores eating more meat and dairy and uh, the vegetarians eating more, um, more plant-based things like legumes and so on. Okay, so the punchline to this is that being able, to, being able to now assess what foods each particular person was eating that were leaving behind traces of molecules in their blood or in their stool, and we should be able to apply this to most biospecimens. Um, what we then did in our Alzheimer's study was looked at foods that correlate with memory. And so there's a standard test for memory, uh, Ray's Auditory Verbal Learning Test, which has four subscales. And so what we could do is we could ask for each food item how well, did, uh, how well did the amount of that food item uh, in specimens derived from that, uh, from that subject correlate with, um, correlate with that subject's ability to perform these different memory tasks. And so uh, what we could then do is we could rank all the foods from best to worst in terms of their impact on memory. And uh, when we look at the foods that are worst for memory, uh, what we saw is that sugarcane and soda were especially bad for, um, for forgetting, for inability to learn. Then on the other end, uh, in terms of improvement in learning, we saw that fish, strawberries and mushroom were all correlated with good memory, uh, good, uh, good learning potential. So, so then the question was, well, does this mean anything? Or if we picked out any random assortment of, of foods, would we see something that just seemed as good to us? So we then, we then looked in the literature uh, for uh, evidence that other studies had found the same things. And so uh, we found a huge amount of evidence linking soda to Alzheimer's. Uh, also a huge amount of evidence um, linking, linking sugar uh, to Alzheimer's um, and, uh, and, and to poor memory in general. And then at the other end of the scale, uh, we saw a whole lot of articles linking fish and linking salmon specifically uh, to improve memory, um, to reduce risk of Alzheimer's, uh, to improvements in uh, dementia in individuals put on a high fish diet. And we even found a few studies uh, looking at strawberries and looking at, um, uh, and looking at mushrooms specifically as potentially being good in this respect as well. 
So what was really, really exciting about this is that basically with an afternoon in the lab running samples to the mass spec, we could literally recapture thousands of person years of scientific research across all these different studies on individual food items. And uh, we can essentially see everything at once. And this is something that I think would be especially uh, exciting to apply in Alzheimer's, where you have, uh, sorry, uh, especially exciting to apply in autism, where you have a tremendous diversity of symptoms um, and a tremendous diversity of conditions some of which are clearly uh, symptoms that you want to relieve to improve quality of life for the individual, whereas some of which might be contributing to human neurodiversity in ways that are ultimately beneficial. And having a fine-grained understanding of which foods modify which aspects could be really important for coming up with new strategies based on anti-inflammatory diet that could have an impact soon, not after 30 years of FDA approval. Um, Now, I just want to leave you uh, with one final thought um, on uh, microbiome-directed interventions. Uh, So so in cancer, these microbiome-directed interventions are already saving lives. And many of you may have heard of Keytruda uh, or uh, checkpoint inhibitor therapy, PD-1, PD-L1 checkpoint inhibitor therapy, where uh, for melanoma, this has been a miracle, uh, where people who had stage 4 melanoma that was definitely incurable by any other therapy uh, get put on Keytruda and their tumors shrink to nothing and they're cancer-free for years later. But it only works for about a third of people who receive it. And it turns out that the reason why is linked to the microbiome, where uh, a number of different labs independently have discovered that you can basically run a microbiome test and figure out who is a responder uh, who is going to get Keytruda and live versus who is a non-responder who will get Keytruda and it will do nothing for their cancer and they will die. And so Jen Margo uh, at MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center and, uh, and her collaborators published this remarkable paper in Science about two years ago where what they were looking at was, uh, was whether you could run the test on the microbiome, find out that someone was going to be a non-responder for Keytruder, but then change their microbiome and turn them into a responder so that the immunotherapy works for them and so that they live. And so they were investigating dietary fiber and probiotics in this particular trial. So the dietary fiber uh, had a remarkably beneficial effect where the patients who were on fiber uh, lived substantially longer and uh, many of them were able to change categories and become responders. But, uh, but the probiotics had the exact opposite effect and they noticed that their patients who were on probiotics died uh, faster than the patients who were not taking probiotics. They also found that they could recapture this in mouse models, just like I showed you for the MIA model in autism, where what they could do is transplant the microbiome and they could transplant um, the cancer into mice and then experimentally give them probiotics. And what they found is that the probiotics for two different commercially available brands increased the size of the tumors in the mice and also the mice died faster if they had the probiotics than if they did not have the probiotics. And this is a really important and sobering message, right, because people generally think that probiotics are good, but even probiotics that are tested in healthy, uh, typical populations may have really adverse effects in patient populations. And until you do the research, you shouldn't assume that something something that's good for healthy people is going to be good in other populations, because at least in this case with cancer immunotherapy, uh, they can be be uh, literally deadly. And so, uh, so being careful about the results of even very promising research is really important. 
So I'm just going to end with a few key messages. Uh, first off, the human body, as I showed you, has more microbial cells and genes than it has human ones, and we can reshape them with diet. And so this may be key to new treatments for uh, autism-related symptoms. Um, microbiome differences are robustly linked to autism, but you have to reuse the right statistical analyses to compare different studies. And uh, this is still a challenging emerging area of research. We're hoping to be able to make it digestible and usable, um, and, and, and usable by uh, patients and their families, but that's still going to be a ways off given that it was just this year that we were able to do it in a research setting. And uh, the emerging microbiome technologies that I talked about, like fecal transplant, uh, precision diet based on your microbiome, uh, probiotics, um, like the one that you might have read about that was used uh, in, in, in that mouse study, all of these are very promising, but they're still largely being researched and they're not ready for clinical use yet, although we hope that they will be ready for clinical use soon. And the tremendous value of dietary strategies is that you don't have to wait nearly as long for FDA approval like you would for a new compound or a new live biotherapeutic agent, which is what any new microbe that we isolate out of the gut is going to be classified as and regulated as. So, um, so, so with that, uh, there's a lot of excitement, uh, there's a lot of hope for the future. Uh, we do need more research to be able to deliver on that hope to patients and their families. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank um, the amazing members of my lab, who it's a true pleasure to come in and, uh, and work with every day. Uh, literally over a thousand collaborators have contributed to work I've mentioned here. Um, so I, I regret that uh, I, I'm not going to be able to list them all by name. And we're very excited about the work that we're doing with Karen Pierce and Eric Corshane, who are going to be speaking later at this conference today, um, relating their eye tracking measures to, um, to, to, uh, to, to the microbiome and where the first samples for that are ready and we should be able to sequence them soon. Um, I'd like to thank our various sources of funding, including the Wolf family and the tens of thousands of members of the public who have contributed to our citizen science efforts. And uh, finally, thanks again for inviting me to start off this conference. Um, it's really a pleasure and a privilege to be here and uh, to connect with this community. And I'd be delighted to uh, answer any questions that you have at this point. Thanks again. So the question was, there are capsules that uh, you can buy now that have fecal matter in them. Do I have any opinions about that? Uh, my understanding is that you can't get those direct to consumer. Uh, they're mostly for clinical trials. So um, at least in the context of clinical trials, uh, capsules derived from fecal material have been about as effective as colonoscopy for some conditions, but not others. Uh, I don't. I, I haven't seen any. Uh, I haven't seen any clinical trials using the capsules for autism, but it's certainly worth investigating given the performance for uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, uh, for example. So um, it, it would be worth trying in a research setting. Um, you should be very nervous if you're getting those capsules off the internet uh, via a mechanism that's not FDA regulated, though, because as I mentioned, there are people who have died from getting bacteria via stool from a donor where the donor was healthy, but those bacteria had adverse effects in the recipient, um, including things like antibiotic-resistant bacteria that took off in the recipient and were incurable because they didn't <coughs> find out what antibiotic would have treated them until it was too late. So, um, so, so again, in a research setting, going in by what's called the, the northern route um, through, uh, you know, from, from the top, as opposed to the southern route by, uh, by colonoscopy, as the people who do this tend to call them, although it's been about equally effective in clinical trials, you should be very, um, you, you should be very cautious about doing it in a non-clinical setting.
Another question? Hi, that was a great talk. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Um, my question is, I was really surprised to hear about the probiotics. And are there any that you feel are safer than, you know, the refrigerated or depending on where you get them? Are, is it best just not to take them at all? Uh, well, as, as a UCSD faculty member, I'm not allowed to disparage or endorse any specific commercial product. Um, but uh, what, 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 I, what I can tell you is that there's been quite a lot of research on probiotics where the... Um, so, so just like colonization resistance for pathogens is, is highly variable. So, uh, you know, um, lots of different people can get exposed to the same pathogen like COVID, for example, and uh, some will die, some will, some will get slightly sick, some won't be colonized at all. Exactly the same is true for probiotics and other putatively beneficial organisms. So Aran Segal, who I mentioned in the context of, um, of, of the uh, dietary trial, uh, did a couple of really interesting papers on probiotics back in 2018, where in one of those papers, uh, his team found that a lot of commercially available probiotics don't even colonize the gut of most people. They just pass straight through. Uh, and in the companion paper, what they found is that for recovery after antibiotics, um, the uh, probiotics were actually harmful to that recovery compared to doing nothing. And the best bet was autologous fecal transplant, so saving your own stool and then, um, and, and then taking it again afterwards. Although, again, uh, in the U.S. at least, you can only do this in a clinical setting. Um, you cannot just uh, do it on a DIY basis. Uh, however, that, that said, there have been some clinical trials of particular probiotics that are good for particular conditions, so especially for uh, post-antibiotic diarrhea and for IBS and for IBD. And uh, the Canadian government actually has a really nice website that summarizes the evidence for each, uh, for each probiotic, for each indication. But, uh, but just like small molecules, the different probiotics are all different from each other, and you really want to match the probiotic to the condition. So, so the way a lot of people approach it, it's, it's like uh, you know, small molecule drugs have just been discovered, and someone's excitingly telling you, uh, you know, I felt sick, and I heard that drugs were good. So I went down to the drugstore, and I bought all the drugs, and I took them in as high a dose as I could find, and now I feel great. So I think everyone should take drugs all the time, even if they're not sick. And you, you probably have a lot of questions for them, right? Like, what drugs are you on? And, um, and uh, you know, with probiotics, it's the same way, where if there's a particular formulation that's been proven in clinical trials to be helpful for a particular condition, um, like, uh, like, for example, for IBS, uh, a lot of people have benefited from particular formulations, um, then, uh, then, then absolutely, that's probably a good, uh, a good idea to take. But without that validation, you should be very worried about whether it's going to um, apply to your condition. And although there's a lot of evidence on, on fermented foods being good for health, whether the active ingredient in the fermented food is the bacteria isolated and put in a capsule, that's also an open research question that, that we don't know the answer to at this point. So you may be better off uh, eating a lot of yogurt and kimchi and so on than you are uh, taking something that's a formulation in a capsule. And unless, unless you have a particular condition that that particular formulation is known to treat. Um, I'm specifically wondering with these studies that you've shown on the Mediterranean diet, what exactly are you defining as the Mediterranean diet? Is there a list published somewhere? Can we get some ideas, that type of thing? 
Yeah, the, the short answer is, is yes. For Mediterranean diet, there's a lot of resources about, um, and including including meal plans, cookbooks, all of those kinds of things. There are also some uh, there are also some derivatives of the Mediterranean diet. So there's Dash, which is specifically targeted at hypertension, um, and there's Mind, which is specifically targeted at Alzheimer's, that make uh, evidence mod- evidence based modifications to the Mediterranean diet that uh, that, that are specifically for um, specifically for particular conditions. Conditions. And uh, again, there's a lot of resources and cookbooks available. Uh, the Mayo Clinic, for example, uh, has a lot of resources outlining the differences between these different um, these different options. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic also has uh, quite uh, quite a large resource, um, including uh, including pointers to where you can get more information. I know, uh, as a worker who works with autistic kids, that um, a restricted palate and a restricted uh, dietary interest is a big obstacle when it comes to um, uh, just trying to get a healthy diet. And it, would you have any strategies on helping to expand their palates and overcome the resistance that would naturally be come with changing their diet? To a healthier one. Yeah, so so that that's a great question, and uh, I, I I have completely the wrong qualifications to uh, address that. Although I think maybe other people here at the conference could speak to that better. Um, you know, uh, even uh, even with neurotypical kids, getting them to eat things like uh, leafy green vegetables and fish and so on is an ongoing challenge, as I can tell you from personal experience. Um, one, uh, one, 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 thing, one thing that I think is potentially helpful is that uh, the, you know, the, the food chemists at the uh, major food companies have all kinds of tricks for taking unlikely ingredients and making them into palatable, even, uh, even too palatable items. And uh, if some of those tricks could be, uh, you know, if some of those tricks could be deployed on foods that are better for us, uh, that that could be that that could be potentially very useful for coming up with products that are uh, that, that are uh, useful for extraordinarily picky eaters. Um, I haven't seen I haven't seen a lot of research on that, but uh, it's certainly something that would be uh, that, that would be good to do. Um, I, I can also tell you that uh, that, that for adults, um, as as chefs have got more involved. In this kind of uh, in, in this kind of activity, uh, the kinds of the, the kinds of meals that were put together, being good from a microbiome perspective, uh, certainly have, have transformed from being things that are extraordinarily unpalatable, even even to adults, uh, to things that are actually quite good. So uh, I, I think it's something that really needs a multidisciplinary approach, where possibly it's going to be on the manufacturing end, uh, possibly it's going to be on the cooking end. And then translating that into simple recipes that overstressed parents can actually do in their own kitchen, um, or you know things like uh, things like prepackaged meal boxes that can be done in a reasonably convenient way and uh, not too expensively. Uh, all all of those are uh, great areas for future research, but there's not a lot that's available right now, unfortunately. Uh, this question says, as this moves from research to practice, what types of medical doctors or practitioners will be able to provide support around diet and supplements such as this? So, so in terms of uh, in, in terms of where we see a lot of interest, uh, we, we see a lot of interest from uh, from nutritionists. Uh, we see a lot of interest. Uh, there's increasingly psychiatrists who are getting interested in um, in the gut brain connections. So. 
just uh, j- just a couple of days ago, I was talking with uh, Dr. Bruce Kerr at um, at Potomac Psychiatry, and uh, he, he is one of many um, many psychiatrists who is uh, increasingly interested in uh, diet as either uh, a complementary therapy or something that by itself can be useful for for some patient populations. Um, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of interest from the uh, from from the naturopath community in general. Uh, we're seeing a lot of interest now from gastroenterologists who traditionally have not been very interested in diet, but uh, who are getting more interested in it uh, in, in part through uh, education through the uh, American Gastroenterological Association Microbiome Center, uh, which I was on the SAB for for a while. So, um, so I think I think across and and then then if you look at cardiology, for example, in cardiac rehab. Uh, that went that that went from not involving a dietary component to um, dietary components very well established as having a huge benefit for cardiac rehab patients now. So I think there's probably going to be a range of different me- medical specialties who uh, who get into this. Uh, what the progress is going to be is going to de- depend a lot on the direct clinical evidence, and then on guidelines that get promulgated by professional societies um, on the on the ease of access to the resources and the utility of them for patients, and uh, probably on spreading positive experiences from existing practitioners. So uh, that, that's where I think it's probably going to go. Thank you. Great. Thanks again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.